Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. In our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we come this morning to a very famous passage, Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22, and this is the passage where Jesus makes the very well-known statement, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God. So let us read this entire passage. Remember the setting that Jesus has come into Jerusalem with great crowds proclaiming him the son of David, that is the Messiah. He has acted the part, he's come in, he's cleansed the temple, and now he's teaching on a daily basis in the temple. But the reception that he's receiving from the cultural leaders is not a welcome one. He's already been come and challenged by representatives of the high priests and of the elders of the people. And now in this passage, we see the Pharisees coming to challenge him. So let's read God's word together, beginning at Matthew twenty-two, fifteen. These are the words of God. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of man. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled, and they left him and went their way. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we need these words as much as the disciples in the first century did. And so we pray that by your Spirit you would open them to us today. Lord Jesus, teach us today that we might be your faithful disciples. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, there's quite a bit of historical background here that's necessary if we are to understand this passage. First of all, the tax in question And let me point out that the the word in Greek is singular, it's tax, it's not taxes, okay? It's one particular tax that is at issue here. And it's not referring to, uh, uh, it's referring to a very specific tax, which was a poll tax that was levied annually on every adult Jew in Judea. This tax did not apply to Roman citizens, It only applied to subject peoples to Rome. This tax did not apply to Galilee, where Jesus was from, because Galilee was not under direct Roman rule, but was under the rule of the Herods, who in turn answered to Rome. So they paid taxes to Herod, but they were not paying this particular tax to Rome. 
Now that had previously been the situation for Judea as well. But in 6 AD, Judea was removed from the Herod's jurisdiction and placed under direct Roman governance, which is why at his trial in Jerusalem, Jesus will be sentenced by Pontius Pilate, who was a Roman procurator. The Jews of Judea deeply resented the direct Roman rule, and the salt in the wound was a number of additional Roman taxes they came under as a result. <clears throat> there were taxes on commercial activities and so forth, but the poll tax stood out. The poll tax was the worst because it was levied directly on each adult Jew simply for being a subject person to direct Roman rule. Thus, more than any other tax, the poll tax symbolized subjugation to Rome. But that was not the only offensive element about this poll tax. The Jews believed the Roman coins that were used to pay this tax were themselves blasphemous. And I will tell you why in just a moment. <clears throat> but because of this Jewish sensitivity toward the coinage, the, Ro the Romans allowed the Jews to coin their own copper money which they could use for most purposes. But the poll tax had to be paid in Roman coinage, specifically the denarius, which was a silver coin which contained a garlanded portrait of the emperor Tiberius, circled with an abbreviation for the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Divi Augusti Filius Augustus which means Emperor Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. So this was an express claim that Tiberius was the son of God and therefore divine. And on the back of the coin was the abbreviation for the words Pontifex Maximus, high priest. So Caesar Tiberius is son of God, he is divine, he is high priest. Now, of course, this was also at a time when the imperial cult was being promoted throughout the world. And that involved the worship of the emperor as the symbol of Rome. They weren't really worshiping the emperor as a person. They were worshiping the, the emperor as the symbol of the genius of Rome, the symbol of all that was great about Rome, the symbol that Rome was the salvation of the world. Rome brought grace and peace to the world. Rome brought uh, deliverance and prosperity. Rome brought the world to where she ought to be. And that's the, the emperor was the symbol of all of that. And so the imperial cult, where Caesar is worshipped as Lord as the Son of God, as High Priest, was the most uh, fastly, quickly spreading uh, cult throughout the ancient world in the first and second centuries. It was spreading more rapidly than Christianity was in, uh, during the time of the book of Acts. Okay, so, consequently, back in 6 A.D., when Judea was placed under direct Roman governance, a Jewish revolt flared up, led by a Galilean named Judas. 
And this was a very serious revolt. It was not a small one. It was a big one. And Roman taxes, particularly the poll tax with this coin, were some of the main fueling elements of that revolt. The revolt was crushed by the Romans, as was their practice. They didn't take half measures. They were, you, you, with a revolt like that, when, Roman, when Rome put it down, wherever they killed people, they would erect a cross, and you would have crosses with, with dead people hanging all throughout the land for people to have a very vivid picture of what happened to those who opposed Rome. So this revolt was crushed. But that revolt lived on in the memory and the imagination and in the political zeal of the Jews. And it would become the inspiration for the zealot movement, which would uh, flare up in 66 AD in the Jewish war for independence, which would result in another cruel defeat by Rome, this time resulting in the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But in, so in between these two revolts, you've got a revolt in which the taxes, particularly the poll tax with this coinage, is one of the main fueling elements in 6 AD. You have another one that happened 60 years later in 66 AD. And then our events come right in between in about 30 AD. So about 30 AD, here comes another Galilean, this one named Jesus, who claims to be the leader of the Jews. He's come in, he's cleansed the temple and so forth. The question arises, is this another Judas like the one of Galilee in 6 AD? Is he fomenting another revolt? And you can see how this provided the perfect setup for the Pharisees' attempt to trap Jesus. Now, the Pharisees' real motivation will be given to us later on in the gospel when we are told that Pilate discerned that the religious leaders who were behind the crucifixion of Jesus were motivated by envy. That's the real motivation. They're envious of Jesus. But right now, we're told that the Pharisees want to entangle him, they want to trap him, and they've plotted, they have thought this through. Now, the Pharisees don't approach Jesus alone. They get some Herodians to come with them. Herodians, of course, would be the followers of Herod. They would be uh, part of his official, uh, some of his officials who serve him and support him. Herod was the king over Galilee. So it seems like they came along as representatives of Herod's, who had jurisdiction of Jesus' place of residence. And also, as further, as indirect representatives of Rome, since Herod answered to Rome. Now, the very fact that the Pharisees show up with the Herodians already shows their hypocrisy, which is what Jesus calls them, hypocrites. For the Herodians represented Rome and therefore the poll tax. But the Pharisees represent the Jewish zealot opposition to Rome and the poll tax. So the fact that the Pharisees would reach out to the Herodians and sell them on coming with them shows by that fact alone their hypocrisy. They show up with their enemies, in other words. They've become friends at some point with these enemies because of their opposition to Jesus. 
So we see they're not concerned with the right or wrongness of the poll tax here. They're simply trying to entrap Jesus by putting him on the horns of a dilemma with no way out. But first, the Pharisees set the stage by flattering Jesus. And they don't just flatter him. Remember, there's a crowd around him because he's teaching the people. So they flatter Jesus in front of the people. And they lay it on thick. Verse 16. Teacher, we know you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Well, the Pharisees didn't believe that. So this is the lie. Nor do you care about anyone. That's true that Jesus was not a respecter of men. You do not regard the person of men. Now in Proverbs 29.5, it says that a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. And that is exactly what the Pharisees are trying to do to Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus through this flattery, number one, get him to let his guard down. And they're trying to get the crowd to whip their expectations up. So they want Jesus' guard to go down. Look how they're flattering me. They're flattering me. I need to answer this question. At the same time, they want the crowd to get their expectations up as they anticipate this great answer. So you can see how they're really setting up Jesus to entrap him. And the question, of course, is whether it's lawful. And here, lawful means lawful, permissible under God's law. They're not talking about Roman law. It's lawful under Roman law. They're talking about God's law. They're talking about the law of Moses. Is it lawful to pay the poll tax to Caesar? If Jesus says no, he will provide grounds to denounce him before the Roman authorities, possibly resulting in his arrest for suspected insurrection. And this is what they were hoping to accuse him with, is what they ultimately accused him with. If Jesus says yes, you can, it is permissible to pay the poll tax, he will lose favor with the crowd whose patriotism toward Israel and resentment toward Rome made them very sympathetic to a lot of the zealot perspective. But in his answer, Jesus, once again, as we've seen him do many times in the Gospels, outflanks his adversaries, but he does not do so in the normal way. Normally, in, in rhetoric, when somebody uh, gets out of a trap or outflanks a stratagem, they simply gain the upper hand. Here, Jesus does not simply elude their trap. He also really answers their question. He really answers their question. Jesus asks to see the tribute coin, <clears throat> which is the denarius, in verse 19. <clears throat> so they bring him one. Now, this is of, of itself is very curious. They bring him one. Well, this is the blasphemous coin, according to the Jews. Uh, here they are in the temple precincts. Jesus, obviously, does not have one of these coins. None of his disciples have one of these coins. None of the crowd listening to him have one of these coins. But these Pharisees and Herodians, they have one which tends to show that they are not too principally concerned with the idolatry of the coin, since they have one ready at hand in the temple. But when he receives a coin, Jesus asks in verse 20, whose image and inscription is this? And they reply, Caesar's. 
Then Jesus says in verse 21, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And we're told then that the Pharisees and Herodians are completely, they marvel at this answer. They realize that the carpet has completely been pulled out uh, beneath him, and yet in some way, by some higher principle, Jesus has actually spoken to the issue. Now, like I said, this is actually not a dodge. It is a refusal to be stupid. It is prudent. It is a refusal to walk into their trap. But at the same time here, Jesus enunciates the principle that will answer all similar questions for Christians down through church history. Jesus enunciates the principle that will answer this and all similar questions for Christians down through church history, including for us in our own day. And that principle is this, ownership. We are to render that which is owned to the one who owns it. We are to render that which is owned to the one who owns it. Now, on the face of it, that seems pretty simple. It seems like Jesus is saying, look, the coin bears Caesar's image and inscription. That means it belongs to him. That means you render it to him. And then there are other things that belong to God, and you render them to God. And so the standard interpretation is there's like there's two different spheres. Over the carnal sphere, over the earthly sphere, this is where Caesar rules and he, he mints coins, he prints money, he owns the money, and therefore you render the money back to Caesar, and so on and so forth. But then there's this other area, this spiritual realm, where God owns some things, you know, our inner affections and so on and so forth, and those spiritual things you render to God. But when we think about it, and particularly when we look at the second part of this answer, render to God the things that are God, we realize this is actually a lot deeper and a lot more complex than it looks. We look at the coin. It's got Caesar's image. It's got his inscription. And so we say, okay, Caesar owns the coin. And then the question naturally arises under the second part of Jesus' answer, render unto God the things that are God's. Where are God's image and inscription found? We have to answer that question. Well, on man, of course. God is where man's, I mean, man is where God's image is found in his inscription. Man was made, man was minted, man was coined, man was impressed with the image of God. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. And verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And so we see this is true of every man, even of the unbeliever. And so for this reason, in Genesis 9, God tells Moses... I mean, he tells Noah, For your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. For the lifeblood of man I will demand a reckoning. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. 
So we see that man is the image of God, and this even applies to unbelievers. Further, man is God's inscription. Man's heart is where the law of God is written. And man is supposed to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The purpose of the new covenant, we're told in Jeremiah 31 and then in Hebrews 8, is to restore man to the position that he was created for, which is to have the law of God written on his heart by the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds by the mouth of God. That is how Jesus, the perfect man, lived, and that is how we are to live. Paul, picking up on this principle in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, says to the Corinthians, you are an epistle of Christ. In other words, you have the inscription of Christ on you. You're an epistle of Christ written by the Spirit of the living God on tablets of the heart. That's what man was created to be. That is what Jesus restores us to be. And again, this is true even of unbelievers. In Romans 2, Paul says that Gentiles, here meaning basically pagans, they show the work of the law written in their hearts through their consciences. Now, this is a suppressed uh, law of God on their hearts. Uh, Paul tells us in the, uh, earlier in Romans that they suppress this truth, they press it down, they don't want to hear it, and therefore it is not some reliable way of, of coming to God or discerning the truth be, because of the sinfulness of man. So the image of God is marred, and the inscription of God is marred, in an unbeliever, but they are still there. And those things are restored in Christ, and that is part of what Christ is doing with us by the Holy Spirit, is making the image of God, the image of Christ, stronger and stronger in us, and the inscription of God's Word stronger and stronger on our hearts as we walk with Christ day by day. So this means that every human being bears the image and the inscription of God. And that means what, according to Jesus? That means that every human being belongs to God, right? Because his image is on him and his inscription is on him. And because every person belongs to God, that means what, according to Jesus? That they ought to render themselves to God. Because the image of God and the inscription of God is on every single person. And therefore, every single person ought to be rendered unto God. This is their tribute. This is their rightful duty. This is what Paul is getting at in his very famous words in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God... Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Render yourself unto God. He says bodies, not meaning bodies only, but meaning even your body, because in the ancient Hellenistic world, uh, the body was seen, uh, the, the material things were seen as being the root of evil, and the soul is good. And so the idea of rendering a body to God was repugnant to the Hellenistic world. You know, and so he's saying, present your whole selves, even your body, 
as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And that is something that the New American Standard and the English Standard Version translate as your spiritual service of worship. Okay? So that is what you do when you realize that the image of God and the inscription of God are upon you, and you have been restored to that knowledge through Christ Jesus. You render yourself unto God because you belong to God because His image and inscription are upon you. Okay, so you give your whole self, and there's no part of you that is not God's, and therefore there is no part of you that you do not render unto God. Now here's where it really gets interesting. These things being true, what does that mean about Caesar? It means that Caesar belongs to God, because he bears the image and the inscription of God, and therefore has a duty to render himself to God. Caesar is busy making coins to be rendered to him. But Caesar himself is a coin bearing somebody else's image. God's. Caesar is not his own coin. And when you think about it further, we realize that it is not just man that God owns, but everything. The earth and everything in it was placed under man we're told in Genesis, and it was placed under man precisely because man was the image of God. He bore the image of God, and for no other reason. Listen to the language. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man's entire ruling function is a facet of being the image of God. So man belongs to God. Man's rule and authority belong to God. And the earth and everything in it over which man rules belongs to God. And because everything belongs to God, everything is to be rendered to God, everything is to be offered up to Him, everything is to be done, that is, according to His will, and as an expression of worship to Him. Now, I'm not reading stuff in here that's not there. I'm simply taking what Jesus is saying and running it out. Because Jesus says, you render unto God the things that are His, and you know what's His by what bears His image and inscription. And that's man, that's all people. And the earth was placed under man, and man's rule and authority is a function of being the image of God. And so when we think about this, we begin to see that Jesus' words are not really a splitting of the baby. Jesus' words are incredibly subversive. His words really pull the carpet right out from under Caesar, and every other ruler who rules in their own name or in the name of man as man. But doesn't Jesus affirm paying taxes to Caesar? Indeed, he does. And Paul tells us so in Romans chapter 13, Romans 13, 7. Render to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. 
But here's the radical thing. It is not because the taxes belong to the governing authorities. It is because the governing authorities belong to God. That is the reason why we pay taxes. Why do we pay taxes to Caesar? Because he owns the money? No. Because God owns Caesar. That's why we pay taxes to Caesar. Listen to get, uh, Paul in Romans 13 again. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, that is, not only because the governing authorities punish evil, but also for conscience' sake. And this is what he's talking about, this conscience' sake, because Jesus owns Caesar. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers. Notice the ownership. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs. And more specifically, we said God owns Caesar, Jesus owns Caesar. Because God the Father has committed all authority and power unto His Son, and He has committed all judgment unto His Son. And so Jesus, at the end of this gospel, will say, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Why does Jesus have all authority? Because he owns everything. Psalm 2, 8. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Jesus owns everything. Therefore, Jesus has all authority. Therefore, everything is to be rendered unto Jesus, God's Son. So we see this radical subversiveness of the Christian marriage. Uh, I mean, the, the Christian message. Yes, Christian marriage is subversive also. The radical subversiveness of the Christian message. It is not, don't pay taxes to Caesar because he doesn't rightfully own them. It is, pay taxes to, Jesus, to Caesar because Jesus owns him. That is the radical subversiveness of the Christian me- message. Now, the other reason that Paul mentions in Romans 13 to pay taxes to Caesar is that Caesar, the civil government in general, has a legitimate place and serves a legitimate function in the government of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul specifies that the civil governing authorities are ordained by God to punish evildoers and to praise those who do good. Paul says in Romans 13.3, Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. You will have praise for the same. He is God's minister to you for good. If you do evil, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, in other words, not only because he serves the legitimate function of punishing evil, but also for conscience sake, And that's the part that refers to the fact that we know who owns who. That's the conscience sake. So we see here that ownership and discipleship go together. Discipleship is man's proper response to God's ownership. Discipleship is man's proper response to God's ownership. God owns He doesn't need our permission. He does. He owns. Discipleship is the part that comes to realize that God owns me 
comes to acknowledge that, to yield to that, and to love that. That's the discipleship part, is bringing man back into the willing, loving relationship part of that. So discipleship goes with ownership. But in the fall of man, the two were separated. God, I mean, man continued to be owned by God, but man was no longer God's disciple. He was no longer God's son in that sense. But in Jesus Christ, ownership and discipleship are being rejoined, which is why Jesus says in the Great Commission, first, all authority belongs to me. In other words, everything belongs to me. And then he says, go therefore and make disciples. Ownership and discipleship. Caesar, owned by Jesus. Caesar, Jesus' disciple. You can't get more radical than that. And radical ends deserve radical means. And what can be more radical than what we've already articulated? Don't pay taxes to Caesar because he owns the money, which he doesn't, even though he thinks he does. Pay taxes to Caesar because Jesus owns him, even though Caesar doesn't think he does. That's the radical subversion of the Christian message. What can be more radical than making Jesus' enemies his disciples by teaching them that he owns them and bringing them to where they own his ownership? And here we get to another very important principle. Christ's kingdom is a transformative kingdom. It is not a revolutionary kingdom. Jesus' kingdom, in his own words, is like leaven. It is not like dynamite. It is not a revolutionary kingdom because it is beyond revolutionary. Revolutions don't change anything. They simply perpetuate the tyranny of man by cycling in a new form of tyranny. Tyranny can take every form as the last uh, 600 years, 700 years have shown. Tyranny can take the form of a dictator. It can take the form of a dictator who claims to rule by divine right. It can take the form of a dictator who acknowledges no divine right, but simply says, I'm stronger than you are. Tyranny can take the form of a parliament. Tyranny can take the form of a priest or a pope. Tyranny can take the form of the people or of democracy. Anytime you have man qua man, that means man as man ruling, tyranny is on its way. It doesn't matter what form it takes, it is on its way. And whenever man wants to bring about change, which is another word for revolution, a turning, whenever man wants to bring about change, whenever man wants to bring about uh, inspired and a great society, apart from being a disciple of Jesus Christ, freedom is on its way out, and eventually people are going to die. What's going to happen? Violent revolution, denying any legitimacy of government by refusing to pay taxes, these are part of the system by which all Caesars and all tyrants come to power. 
That is part of fallen man's way of governing. And there are therefore, they are part of what Christ came to overthrow. Therefore, Jesus condemned the Jews who were in the zealot movement. He, he condemned the Jews of that mindset. Jesus came to change all that, and that's what his kingdom is supposed to do. Christians paying taxes to Caesar because Christ owns Caesar. And Christians affirming that truth while calling Caesar to discipleship. This is one of the main means by which Jesus, over time, brings the authorities to be his disciples. That's exactly what the Christians did in the Roman Empire, the first, second, and third century. And many times they died for it. But eventually, uh, it changed. Eventually, a Caesar arose who came under discipleship. Was he perfect? No. Did everything become perfect right away? No. Still isn't. But it was still a huge advancement forward. So what does all of this mean in practice? It means we are to be model citizens whenever we can do so consistent with the message that Christ owns the governing authorities and they should be his disciples. We subject ourselves to the governing authorities, as Paul says. We pay taxes and customs, as Paul says. But we do so in a way that affirms that Jesus owns the governing authorities. That means that we have to oppose by lawful means if possible. Lawful means would be speaking out uh, under the First Amendment. In our form, uh, government here, we have a First Amendment right to speak out. And the First Amendment originally didn't have anything to do with Occupy Wall Street or setting up tents in somebody's establishment and impeding uh, commerce and so forth. It meant specifically, and it didn't mean obscenity, and it didn't mean pornography, and it didn't mean any of that stuff. What it meant was the right to speak out against what the government was doing. That's exactly what it meant. The right to speak out against what the government was doing. Okay? So that would be lawful means, voting, being involved politically in other ways. Uh, those would be lawful means. But we must oppose by disobedience, if necessary, wherever Caesar directly denies that Christ owns all things. Now this can be done in different ways. And we can learn a lot here by looking at church history. Church history kind of provides us, particularly early church history, kind of provides us a front sight to go along with the rear sight of Jesus' words so that we can see how those line up and we can see what Jesus was aiming about. So here's some of the things we see in early church history. Neither John the Baptist nor Jesus called upon Roman centurions to give up their positions in the Roman army. In Luke, centurions specifically asked John the Baptist how they were to bear the fruits of repentance by virtue of their faith in the word he was speaking. 
John tells them to not abuse their authority. Don't abuse your authority. Don't, don't abuse your position in the Roman army. But he says nothing to them about leaving the Roman legions. And one of the people whose faith Jesus marveled at in the Gospel of Matthew early on was a centurion. Jesus healed his servant, but he said nothing to the centurion about leaving the Roman service. In fact, in the book of Acts, the very first Gentile convert, one who was handpicked by God, was a Roman centurion. But we see a change after Rome began to persecute Christians in the mid-60s A.D. When, uh, all through the book of Acts, it is not the Romans who are persecuting the Christians. It is the Jewish leaders who are persecuting the Christians. The Romans are always stepping in. There's a time they would have torn Paul limb from limb if the Romans hadn't stepped in. Okay? So the Romans are always stepping in in between uh, the Jewish establishment that is persecuting the Christians. But in the mid-60s A.D., that all changed with an emperor named Nero. And he began to persecute the Christians directly. And then, then all the way up into the 300s, uh, in different waves, it wasn't constant. But you had a number of waves of persecution of Christians, where they would be uh, put to death, even uh, for being Christians. When Rome began to adopt the policy of persecuting Christians, the church changed its policy and it began to insist that anyone who wore the purple, that is, anyone who worked for the Roman government, to leave their position if they wanted to become a Christian. At that point of a Roman centurion, or anybody else who was a civil service or wore the purple, of this Christ-persecuting government, if they came to become a Christian, they had to leave their position. The apostles took pains to make sure in the first century that Christians distinguished themselves from the Jewish anti-Roman zealots who were going to foment everything into the Jewish war for independence in 66 AD. Uh, we've already looked at Romans 13, where Paul is very careful to talk about that. You can also look at 1 Peter 2, where he says, Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may be by your good works uh, glorify God in the day of visitation. So submit yourselves to every ordinance of man's for the, for the Lord's sake. So they were at pains. They wanted to make sure that the Christians stood out as apart from the Jews who were going to revolt against Rome. They wanted the, the Christians to be law-abiding in every way possible, except where Caesar is claiming to be divine, is claiming to be Lord, or something like that. We'll get into that more in just a minute. And yet, along with this law-abidingness that the apostles were preaching to the Christians... There was a subversiveness. In Acts chapter 17, Paul and the Christians who were with him are accused of turning the world upside down and preaching another king named Jesus, contrary to the laws of Caesar. Now, this whole frenzy was whipped up by a guy who was a silversmith who made it uh, little idols, images, 
uh, to the, the local uh, goddess there in Ephesus. And um, he's worried about losing his trade because the Christians stand against idolatry. So those charging the Christians were wrong, but they were also right. They were wrong in the sense that Paul and his uh, fellows were not disobeying any laws or avoiding any taxes or advocating insurrection. On that front, Paul and the Christians were model citizens. And yet their accusers were right in that the gospel of Jesus Christ was inescapably subversive not only to Caesar, but to all governments of man qua man. Paul and the Christians were law-abiding citizens, that was true, but it was also true that they did so not because Caesar was Lord. They did so because Caesar's Lord, Jesus, told them to. And thus they carried the seeds, they carried the leaven that would one day subvert Caesar worship and the rest of the idolatry of the Roman Empire. So we see that Jesus rules the way that Joseph ruled. Joseph, it tells us in Genesis, became a father to Pharaoh. That's the word it uses, a father to Pharaoh. Joseph was really over Pharaoh because Pharaoh looked to him as a father. Notice the discipleship principle. But Joseph did not kick Pharaoh off the throne. He made him a disciple. That is what Jesus is looking for from the rulers of the earth. Over time, the lordship of Christ completely subverts, undermines, and overturns the governments of man qua man, but not in the way we normally think of subversion and revolution. And that's why Christians can be law-abiding citizens and yet completely subversive, both in obedience to Jesus. And that is what Jesus is looking for. And one of the key principles is exactly what he tells us in our text. Now, because Jesus is Lord over every authority, one of the limiting principles is that authorities cannot demand that which God reserves to himself. Authorities cannot demand God, that which God reserves to himself. Authorities cannot take to themselves that which God said belongs exclusively to him. Now, the first thing, of course, would be claiming the status of God. That can be done openly like Caesar did. And so uh, the Romans, uh, the subject people in the Roman Empire were required to take the pinch of incense, to say Caesar is Lord, to burn the incense unto Caesar, acknowledging him as ultimate Lord in that way. That is one of the ways that Pliny the Younger snuffed out the Christians. He said, this is how you tell if they're a Christian. Because if you call them before you and you tell them to do this, they won't do it. And he said, then I kill them. This is what Christians died for. And the Rome accused them of being a social problem, of causing trouble, of breaking up the peace and the prosperity and the social fabric of the empire. So, if we're called upon to declare anybody Lord under the, other than Jesus, that is, that's a bright line. We go to the stake on that. That one's clear. Of course, governments can do that implicitly and indirectly. 
That would include implicitly claiming to be the ultimate authority, claiming to have unlimited authority, claiming to be the ultimate determiners of right and wrong, or simply acting as if they do, or claiming to be the ultimate definers of reality. A second thing would be claiming ultimate and defining authority over human life, or claiming ultimate allegiance of humans to itself. So there, of course, we run into the issue of abortion, because there is something that bears the image of God and the inscription of God that is being declared by the central government to not bear the image of God or the inscription of God. It's being declared to not be a person. All right? When Hitler killed six million Jews in World War II, we were outraged. We've now killed 20 million babies in this country. At what point do we become evil? We were outraged at the Nazis, uh, the German populace, we were outraged, and we didn't want to hear their excuses that they didn't see that these things took place in these out-of-way death camps that they didn't see. We give them very short shrift on that. 20 million babies killed out of the way because our government has redefined. Government has said that the baby is not a person, is not a separate entity, is just merely some kind of an inner appendage of the mother. And the mother has the absolute right to determine life or death, as Caesar would give it. The womb is a home. It's the very first home God gives to a baby, the womb of the mother. It's God's way of saying, I'm going to give you a place where you're going to be protected, you're going to be taken care of, you're going to be kept warm, you're going to be fed and nurtured, and you're going to begin to learn what life is all about in this first home that I'm going to give you. That's where they're killed. It's a home invasion. We stand on that. Now, that doesn't mean that we take up violence to stop abortion. I believe that that would put us in the same boat as the Jewish zealots. That's just more of the same thing. But we stand and we speak. And if we need to go to jail to do so, then we do so. Okay. Another issue would be declaring the word of God. Early in the chapters of Acts, you have Peter and other apostles dragged before the rulers and told not to teach any more in the name of Jesus. Not to teach any more in the name of Jesus. And they were beaten and so forth. Peter's response, the disciples' response to them was, whether... We should obey man rather than God. You will have to decide, but we cannot top, stop speaking. In other words, this is an issue 
where you, you, know, you have a legitimate function, Christ actually owns you, but now you're directly telling us to not render unto God, to not render unto Jesus that which bears His image and His inscription, and that is His Word. That's something we cannot do. Another example would be um, the modern um, gay rights movement and gay marriage movement issue. Again, that is a place where the government is claiming to itself the right to name, the right to define people's essence, the right to name them in a sense, and is declaring the right for each person to be able to name and to define themselves. Okay? And so we know, we know that babies are either born male or female. I mean, that's a fact. That's that's a biological fact. We know that. Okay. This is by virtue of the fact that God names. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that the Father is the one from whom everyone derives their name. Everybody is named by the Father. That means we're given an identity by God. Male and female are not biological accidents. They are biological reflections of the identity of the name that God has given us. Equally in the image of God, but one being a reflection and a biological expression of masculinity, the other being a biological reflection of femininity, both in the image of God, but both to express that image in different and complementary ways. Our government has declared that it and every individual has the right to name themselves to determine their own identity. And so if you want to know how crazy this is going to get and how crazy it's getting, already in California, um, a law was passed, and it has now been held, upheld by the Federal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, that forbids any kind of a psychologist or a counselor from, giving, from counseling a person under the age of 18 um, that, their, that their sexual orientation ought to match their biology or to, to help them, uh, if they're struggling with homosexual tendencies and desires, they may not speak to them about reorienting their sexual tendencies and desires. It's against the law. At the same time, this person under the age of 18, 15, 16, whatever they are, can choose to no longer be a man and to become a woman, or to no longer be a woman and to become a man. But you may not speak to them about changing their desires or their orientation to fit what God has made them to be and called them to be. That's where we're going. That's another issue where we will have to, as Christians, we will have to speak. We will have to speak the word of God because it concerns the, one of, the word of God, which bears his inscription, and it concerns people, which bear the image and the inscription of God. I will mention one more 
that I think is a bright line, and that is raising our children in the faith. Raising our children in the faith. That is another thing that comes up from time to time. They are already making plays to keep us from raising our children in the faith by just sucking as many of our children as possible into a system and an environment where they can inculcate them in a worldview that assumes that God does not exist, a, a completely naturalistic worldview. But the rhetoric is being fomented, and it's out there all the time, that says it is child abuse for these religious fanatics, these Christians, these evangelicals, these fundamentalists, to teach their children these lies about God and about Jesus. That's child abuse. Okay, that's the that's the foundation that's being laid. Okay, if it comes to the point where they are telling us we cannot speak the gospel, we cannot speak the word of God, we cannot raise our children in the faith. We say, thank you, Jesus, for all things, for we know you're in control of all things and you've called us to live in this time. Help us to be faithful. Watch over us. Take care of our children because we're going to raise them in the faith, and here we go. That's what it means. I offer all these things to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.